Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Good morning, everyone. For those who don't know, my name's Ephraim. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a blessing to be here to share God's word with you today. And um, I do so with great concern and consideration. The Bible said, blessed is the one who trembles at the word of the Lord. And um, this is a time for trembling. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I have the, the privilege and the pleasure of continuing um, our Marriage Matters considerations. And so this is message four in that series. And... Um, The fundamental issue on the table today is how do you make the best of the worst case? How do you make the best of the worst case? It's been an encouragement to hear God's grand design for marriage and how that relates to us as a church with married couples, how it relates to us as a church with those who are single and desiring to be married, and also as a church with those who are single and content in their singleness and who interact with those who are married and seek to exhibit the qualities of one who is a, what was the term, good-looking Christian man or drop-dead gorgeous Christian woman. The reality is that these matters have relevance to all of us, regardless of whether we're married or not, regardless of whether we desire to be married or not, because as a church we are a family and we are the bride of Christ, and in that relationship that we have one another, God is not partial with regards to the, the qualities and the aspirations that he has for his people. And so as we consider what do we do in those situations personally and corporately when things are at their worst, because the reality is that there are times in some marriage relationships where things get very bad. Now, this isn't the kind of message that you'll hear at your average wedding. It's hardly a wedding sermon because it would be completely inappropriate and out of place. Who wants to stand up in a wedding facing the beautiful bride and groom, family, everybody dressed in their finest, and talk about worst-case scenarios and even the D word. I think there would be a few aunties who would um, run very swiftly to remove me from the pulpit if that were the case. And yet it's something that we have to consider and it's something that we have to face because it is a reality for Christians. It's a reality that marriages do find themselves, some marriages do find themselves in bad places at times, even to the point where the matter of divorce has to be considered. So, over the next, I say two weeks, and I say that hesitantly because I want to walk through this at a measured pace. I don't want to um, rush this, and I don't want to smudge this. My desire is that there would be clarity, and so I'd ask you to walk with me um, as we consider these issues. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and faithfulness toward us. We do thank you for your mercy and loving kindness. 
We thank you for the fact that you are the eternal God who is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you, Lord, for marriage. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that it's been instituted by you, designed for your purpose and your glory, and for the good of people, especially your people. We ask that you'd give us wisdom, and I ask, Lord, particularly that you'd give me clarity as I seek to convey that which your word says. Help us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So how do we make the best of the worst case? Um, When I say the worst case, what do I mean? That might mean different things for different people. Well, let me adjust myself a little. I want to make sure I can see everybody's eyeballs. (laughs) I spoke to somebody this week. In fact, it was actually last week. Um a brother that I've known for many years and who I love dearly. And he, we were catching up after having not caught up for quite a while. And he said to me, um, basically, I've been separated from my wife for um, at least almost a year. And um, she, the last time I saw her, she said to me that she wants a divorce. There was obviously a very long conversation around where things were at and where it looked like things were going. Um, The reality is there had been no adultery. Um, The reality is that there had been no evident abuse And yet, she, as one who professes to be a Christian, had removed herself from the home and got to the point where she decided she wanted a divorce. Now, my heart goes out to him, and I find it somewhat difficult to talk about because of the love that I have for him, And the pain that divorce causes. And I can't begin to appreciate in any full sense what it must feel like to be in that place where you are facing a broken relationship, a broken marriage. The one whom you committed yourself to entirely rejects you and no longer wants to be with you, to be in relationship with you, even to the point of desiring others. I can only imagine what that may feel like having been married for 23 years. And there are those fleeting times when I'm like, wow, what what if my wife was having an affair? <laughs> Listen. What what if she was? And you know the devil's a liar, you know, cuz sometimes he likes you to try and kind of create suspicion. He's called the accuser of the brethren, right? He's not called the accuser of the brethren for no reason. And so I might look at little certain things and be like, "Hmm. Is there something going on here that I need to kind of Actually, let me just be real. I'll just be honest. <laughs> the other day I said to my wife, I said, um, who's Ricky? <laughs> <laughs> I said, who's Ricky? You don't remember? The other day. Like. <laughs> I tried to do it kind of subtly, you know, like, 
because for some reason I got it in my head that there was this Ricky or Richard in the picture. <laughs> you don't work with a, someone called Richie, Ricky, Richard. See, my wife works for a construction company, a um, male-dominated environment. And, um, you know, if I do say so myself, my wife is attractive. <laughs> and I know that there are um, lots of people who, lots of men who um, have expressed the appreciation that they have for attractiveness. <laughs> Let's put it like that. But in those moments, in those instants when suspicions have run through my mind and I've entertained them long enough to begin to feel emotional about it, it's only in those moments that I can begin to even imagine what it would be like to experience a broken marriage and even divorce. And so, evidently, this is a highly emotive subject and... One of the things that I've endeavored to do and I encourage us to do is to guard our hearts that we don't seek to judge the text or to evaluate the text by way of our emotions. Emotions make a terrible master. They are meant as a servant. And so we ought not to be ruled by our emotions especially not in the way that we relate to God. Fundamentally, God's will is his word that he has declared to us. And as we seek to understand God's will, we must wrestle with his word honestly and considerately. The first thing I want to note is that marriage is a blessing instituted by God. In any given situation, regardless of the circumstances, marriage is a blessing that God invented. And it is to be recognized and regarded as that. We see this at the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And there in verse 23, we hear Adam's expression of delight and wonder as he is presented with Eve, his woman. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And we see, one, that God made all things well. And in fact, when he made male and female, not only did he say it was good, as he did with the rest of his creation, but he said this was very good. So we recognize that marriage is a blessing in that sense, but we also recognize that Adam appreciated marriage to be a blessing as he exclaimed at last. Prior to that, he had only had relationship with animals by way of naming them and observing them and understanding them. And yet, even upon first sight of the woman, he exclaimed with great joy, at last. We also see from the first wedding that marriage is meant to last. In verse 24, we see that the narrator speaking by the Spirit of God, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so right there in verse 24, we see that declaration of the man and the woman to hold fast 
old school terms, we used to say, leave and cleave. Leave the mother and father and cleave unto his wife. And where Jesus quotes that, the Greek term is used um, as one of bonding like unto glue. That there is a fastening, there is a bonding, there is a sticking to one another that's to take place. One man, one woman. And so marriage is meant to last. Even to the point where the two become one flesh. Marriage is meant to last. And yet, as we continue in the story, we see that marriage can go wrong. Even in the first instance. And so in chapter 3, and I would assume that most of us are familiar with the story. Eve experienced, encountered the first sin. And yet, let's appreciate that the first sin wasn't actually the sin that she committed in taking the fruit. But it was Satan's attack against marriage. As he came to deceive the woman by questioning, did God say? And yet Eve responded and she took the fruit and she gave to her husband who was with her and he ate of the fruit and then came the fall. Sin entered into the world Human nature was corrupted by sin, and in fact, all of nature was corrupted by sin. The whole world became corrupted by sin. Sin entered the world, and marriage went wrong. Adam and Eve were thrown out of their house, and yet, worst of all, they changed for the worse. Their sin against God resulted in a selfish desire to do their own thing, to do what they wanted. Not even corporately, but individually. To the point where God identifies when speaking to the woman that your desire will be for your husband in chapter 3. Your desire will be for your husband Meaning, you will desire the place that your husband holds. You will desire to rule your husband. And right there we see the root of tension in relationships. And so marriage went wrong. And as fallen, broken people in a fallen, broken world, as Christians who are sinners saved by God's grace, indwelt by his Holy Spirit, and yet still possessing a sinful nature, in the process of being sanctified by the working of God's word and spirit in our lives, we still experience the results of that fall and that brokenness in our lives. We still experience the pull of sin in our lives. To the point where, even now as Christians, we experience marriage going wrong. And for some, marriage at its worst. And so, what should we do when things couldn't get any worse? Understanding that marriage is a blessing, that marriage is meant to last, and yet appreciating that marriage can go wrong. What should we do? Or maybe what we're really asking is, is divorce an option? Is divorce an option? 
And if so, under what circumstances? Ed Stetzer, when commenting on a, in an article in churchleaders.com, he says this. He says, marriage was intended to be a God-ordained commitment between one husband and one wife for one lifetime as one flesh. And yet sin has broken that. And we see those effects all around us, even in the church. So, my friend and brother in the Lord wakes up one day to his wife packing a few things to leave. At least he had the privilege of that. Because there are those who have woken up to find their spouse gone. There are those who weren't even asleep at the time. Their spouse left to go to the shop and never came back. Is divorce an option? If so, under what circumstances? Now, in order to sum up what I understand the Bible to teach concerning divorce in the life of Christians, I would sum it up in this way. Christians shouldn't get divorced And furthermore, Christians shouldn't get divorced. But they can under certain circumstances. Christians shouldn't get divorced, but they can under certain circumstances. Now, before I begin to unpack those circumstances and what we understand to be the biblical grounds for divorce, let me underline the fact that Christians shouldn't get divorced. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul writes this, and this is a context that we will explore more next week. But he says this as one who is speaking by the spirit of the Lord, but not commenting on matters that Jesus specifically referred to. Jesus didn't specifically refer to issues within the church because the church hadn't been birthed yet. And so now the the apostle Paul, by the spirit of the Lord, was able to comment on those things in a wider sense. And yet still, we see that in verse 10, he makes it clear that actually this first statement is me commenting, giving commentary on what Jesus has said. And so he says in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 11, But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So this is a statement with regards to the Christian's intent. Even when faced with The worst case scenario. As a principle we see here, the Apostle Paul make it clear they should avoid separation. Secondly, as a principle we see, the Apostle Paul highlight the fact that if there is a separation needed, which can be the case, then let it be a separation and not a divorce. And the third principle, reconciliation is the goal. 
So let me give you a scenario. So you have Sister Tina and Brother Frank. They've been married for five years, and they're having difficulties in their relationship. Actually, Sister Tina is highly abusive, both physically and emotionally, to Brother Frank. Some would call her a man-beater. Now, that might sound somewhat comical, but it is a reality in the context of Christian marriages. I've commented this on this before in the series um, called Female Vocals, and it is still my conviction today that there are a lot of men in Christian marriages who are suffering abuse from their wives because their wives know that they're genuine Christians and won't retaliate. And so there are men who are being subjected to abuse emotionally and physically. And they are enduring it because they desire to be faithful to God and not retaliate against their wife, even in her abusive expression toward them. This is a real issue. And the In society, people think, well, you're the man. So why are you going to stand for that? And in the world, a man saying, I'm not standing for that. If a woman steps to me and she's off key, even if she talks to me wrong, you know what? She just gets the back of my hand. Generally speaking, as a generalization, men tend to be physically stronger just by, by, by nature. And so that the, the fact that a man would suffer abuse, even physical abuse, is such that it seems unthinkable. Bruh, surely. You're just going to throw her down and put her in her place. And yet the Christian man who fears the Lord, who seeks to glorify and honor Christ, will often subject themselves and endure abuse. It may not even be physical. It may be Emotional, manipulation, control, emotional blackmail. Constant torture through degrading words. Should Brother Frank stay in that situation? It actually, truth be known had been going on since the second week of their marriage. When the honeymoon was over, literally, seven-day honeymoon, not even ten days, wife switched. Should he stay in that situation five years later, six years later, seven years later, enduring that abuse? How would you counsel Brother Frank as a brother or sister in the Lord? What would you say? Just pray about it, brother. I'll fast with you. I'm not minimizing the power of prayer in any way. We serve a mighty God. But what do you say when Brother Frank has lost weight from fasting? And he's stressed. And his iron levels are low and he's getting anemic. Because he can't take the situation anymore. The scripture gives permission for separation in that situation. Now, the reality is, if it was a woman that we were talking about, if the tables were turned and Brother Frank was abusing Sister Tina, huh? this example would have finished a long time ago. Because it would have simply have been, Sister Tina, get out of the house. Are you crazy? In either circumstance, regardless of the direction of the abuse, abuse, the reality is that the one who is being offended, the one who is being Um, sinned against 
having sought counsel, and this is where the, the whole issue of church discipline comes into the frame. And as we look at 1 Corinthians 7, we have to remember that 1 Corinthians 5 came before 1 Corinthians 7. And 1 Corinthians 6 comes before 1 Corinthians 7. Amen? Simple logic there. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we see the Apostle Paul address those who profess to be Christians and yet are sinning. Sinning openly and flagrantly in ways that contradict their profession of faith. So in the example given in in 1 Corinthians 5, the main issue is one of sexual immorality. But at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, we see that the Apostle Paul does not limit church discipline to matters of sexual immorality. So if you'd like to turn there, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. First Corinthians 5.10 Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, i.e. I'm speaking about those who profess to be Christians, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler. And if your most translations at this point have a little hyphen. Meaning this is not an exhaustive list. This list continues to other such matters. Other such issues where a person's profession of faith in Christ is being contradicted by their behavior. Any such issues need to be dealt with in this fashion. You are not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, this is an aspect of church life that we don't like, especially in our very sentimental society where we think that love equates to warm feelings. And so as soon as we challenge someone, they say, but you don't love me. Why would you say that I don't love you? Because you don't, I don't feel good about what you're saying. That's not the biblical definition of love, where it is defined by the fact that we seek the best interest of that person. And so sometimes in the best interest of a person, we need to confront their sin And where they are unrepentant, it needs to be noted within the church that this is the case and they need to be put out, excommunicated. Hence a practical reason for membership. How can you put out someone who's not in? Now, for most people, this is not a decision that you will have to make. So it's easy to read that chapter and read over it. But for us as elders, this is serious stuff. Because we are called to uphold the honor of Christ's name. Now, this is not all that the New Testament has to say about church discipline. So I don't want to reduce your understanding to simply this text. Matthew 18 maps out a course of correction, which includes where there's an issue going to the individual personally. And if they don't hear you, then take two or three witnesses. Now, at any one of those stages, the, the issue could get resolved and it doesn't need to become public knowledge to the members, and result in excommunication. 
Sometimes in our quest for righteousness, maybe even in self-righteousness, we can find ourselves in a place where we have an unhealthy bloodlust. We just want to see heads roll. The goal ultimately is repentance. And if a person repents and they bring forth fruit of repentance, then they should be restored. And this is a matter for the elders to consider. And so with that as the backdrop to chapter 7, Paul has already established the context that where there are matters of sin within the life of the believers, it is such that it is a matter and it may need to become a matter for the church to intervene in by way of leadership. And so in that instance where, in chapter 7, Paul speaks with regards to the permission to separate with a view to seek reconciliation. This is something that would have involved the counsel of leaders, the intervention of leaders in the relationship. And if somebody is in a situation where they're in an, in an abusive or troubled relationship, you're not supposed to suffer in silence. You're not supposed to suffer on your own. Particularly where this is a matter between two Christians. Even if it's not, you're a Christian and you're in that situation. Seek support. Seek counsel from the elders. But where this is, as Paul's referring to, speaking of two believers, the abusive partner is supposed to be called to account. And so there's a process. There are circumstances to be fulfilled whilst reconciliation is pursued. And so... In the first instance, a Christian shouldn't seek to get divorced. They should seek rectification and repentance. Rectify the situation. Let's see that there's repentance, even if that has to be achieved with the abused individual being out of the house. The church are to support in those matters. Now, Paul is expounding on and commenting on that which the Lord himself had said. And there are a few places in the gospel that note Jesus' teaching on divorce. I'm going to encourage us to turn to Matthew 19, verses 1 to 8. As you turn there, I would um, highlight the fact that on the basis of 1 Corinthians 7 and those verses 10 and 11 that we looked at, there are some Christians who would say a Christian is never to divorce. And if they experience divorce, they're supposed to remain unmarried and pursue reconciliation with the divorced party. Now, we will talk more about that next week when the focus is more on remarriage. 
But let's consider Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19 with regards to divorce. So Matthew 19, verses 1 to 9. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now I pause there. Let's just think first of all about the question before we think more about the answer. Often we read over the question and skip right to the answer and then debate that. Let's think about the question first of all and even the circumstances surrounding the question. So who was asking the question? Not a rhetorical. Talk back to me. The Pharisees. And what was their intent in asking him the question? In that first sentence. Say that again. To test him. Now, does this sound like a very challenging question? Generally speaking. What would be the big test in having to answer this question? I mean, it's the answer that Jesus gave is probably the answer that any one of us would give as Christians. And that would be pretty much standard. There are those who would debate that, but pretty much standard. But we see that they were coming, the Pharisees were coming to challenge Jesus, to test Jesus, to see what he would say. The reason that this was such a testing question was because they were probing a very hot topic. A topic that was greatly debated in their time and even prior to their time. Why was this such a hot topic? Well, it's revealed in the question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That question relates specifically to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. We'll come to that in a moment. And basically what happened At the time of Jesus, even amongst the Pharisees, you had two schools of thought. You had the dominant school of thought that said you could get divorced for any reason. And you had the conservative school of thought who were in the minority. And they said only for adultery. Let's read on before we look at. Deuteronomy 24. So verse 4, Matthew 19. Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So right there, Jesus affirms monogamous marriage. Male and female, singular. And said, Therefore a man, singular, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. And so not only is he affirming monogamous as opposed to polygamous marriage, he was, and I think this needs to be said for our day and age, endorsing male and female marriage. And the fact that it was to be lasting. They become one flesh. They hold fast to one another. Verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce And to send her away. So they now make reference to the heart of the matter. They're seeking Moses to justify their permissive attitude toward divorce. Divorce for any reason. And when I say any reason, it could be literally any reason. 
We've heard jokes of if she burns the food, puts too much salt in the dinner, washes the clothes and they run. I mean, it didn't even have to be that. They could just get up and leave and say, I don't like her anymore. Verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus clarifies the intent and meaning of what Moses said back in Deuteronomy. If you want to look briefly at Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, if, you, if it's long to turn there, hopefully we'll be able to flash it up. Let's see what that says and see where they were seeking justification for their view. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, sorry, verse 2, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. A lot to be commented on. Let's focus on verse 1, because it was verse 1 where the Pharisees were seeking their justification. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That phrase, finds no favor because he finds some indecency. In the original language, the Pharisees divided the Hebrew into two sections. Finds no favor because of indecency. And they basically tried to say that there were two clauses there, that a man could basically find no favor with her and or because of indecency. And that term indecency in the original language speaks of sexual immorality, which is the aspect that Jesus underlined. So they tried to break up the phrase, well, I find no favor in her, so she's got to go. And in the culture of that time, even amongst the heathens, it was common practice for men to just leave their wives. Because wives in that era were socially and economically um, of a lower status than men, wives were not prone to doing that because men were the breadwinner and men were their security, men were their providers. And so wives wouldn't just get up and leave a guy. But men would take advantage of women and leave them high and dry. And so even in Moses saying that you've got to give a certificate of divorce, this was a new thing in that culture. They never even wrote divorce certificates before that. Here today, gone tomorrow. And so Moses was even applying some restriction to their permissive attitude. When Jesus comments in Matthew 19, he comments to clarify the fact that this is one statement, not two phrases. This is not two clauses and two conditions. It's one condition because of sexual immorality. And so as he responds... To the Pharisees on that matter, he is responding to the fact that this specific question and this specific debate 
is answered in this specific way. Deuteronomy 24 was a a point of case law. Case law, unlike the moral law of the Ten Commandments, is such that it was given to establish principles. It was given to establish principles. So, for example, um, if in case law, there was was case law amongst the Hebrews that if somebody had a flat roof on their house and they had people over, it was necessary that they put a railing around the, the flat roof of the house so that people wouldn't drop off. That was a point of specific case law. But from that, a principle was derived. You have to be responsible for those who are in your dwelling. And so if somebody walks in and there's tools all over the floor and they're liable to hurt themselves, it's your responsibility to ensure that that doesn't happen. Even though that specific example wasn't given in case law, the principle applied. Here we have an example of Jesus applying the principle of case law in that specific instance. We'll talk more about that next time. The thing to highlight is this. This was a debate and understanding that informed the Pharisees' question. They came with a specific goal to test Jesus and see whose side he would fall on, which, which school of thought he would support. Would he be the loose-willed and permissive Hillelites, or would he be conservative like the Shamites? All of them were aware that that is not all that the scripture had to say about divorce. And actually, in Exodus 21, we see another reference in verses 10 and 11 to an additional grounds for divorce which was universally accepted. So not just one grounds for divorce, adultery, but actually another grounds for divorce. And it was universally accepted amongst the Jews as a proven fact of case law. And um, there's a, a, a British professor and theologian who's one of the top theologians in rabbinic studies. His name's David Instone Brewer. He's written an excellent book on the matter of divorce and remarriage in the church. And um, one of the reasons he's a professor of rabbinic studies is because he understands Hebrew. He reads it as a, as a language that he understands. And he also has researched and looked at archaeological finds of Hebrew divorce certificates, amongst other things, of that time. And so it was commonly regarded and commonly practiced to note on divorce certificates the reason for the divorce. And in this we see Exodus 21 verses 10 and 11 often cited, often quoted. Long story short, read the verses, brief explanation. So, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights, her conjugal rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Context. So, it's speaking of the Hebrew man who takes a slave. And if he chooses to marry her, then she becomes his wife and is regarded as a wife, not as a slave. And if he takes another wife to himself, as polygamy, multiple marriages, um, were, was practiced in that time, the case law says he will not diminish her food, the, the slave who he's taken unto himself as a wife. He will not um, deprive her of clothing, or her conjugal right, sexual intimacy. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So she's, able, she's free to leave because of the neglect that's been experienced. 
It's not even as though he could just sell her. He's made a wife of her. He's changed her status. Case law. Amongst the Jews, this was recognized as the abuse clause. Abuse can be active, as I described earlier, between Sister Tina and Brother Frank. But abuse can also be passive by way of neglect or abandonment. Two clauses, adultery and abuse. Paul comments on the, uh, the abuse clause by way of mentioning neglect in 1 Corinthians 7. To the rest I say, sorry, verse 12, I am not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. That word enslaved is quite a good um, interpretation, translation of the word. Not in bondage, not obligated to their vows and commitment to that person. If the unbelieving partner chooses no longer to be with the believer and they separate themselves. That separation, desertion, is Paul acknowledging the passive nature of abuse as it relates to Exodus 21. Some of us may have been in situations where we've kind of figured, well, you know what? What if a husband's abusing his wife and he hasn't committed adultery? Should should she stay with him? She should stay with him because it's only adultery. That's a reductionistic understanding of what the scripture has to say as a whole about the situation. Now, that was a lot. And that was preparation for next week. And at community group, we'll be able to explore and unpack this further. What should a person do in the worst case scenario? As a Christian, if you need to separate, separate. If your safety is in jeopardy, if your well-being is in jeopardy, having involved the elders and received the counsel of the church, if you need to separate, separate. In order that the situation might be rectified and repentance established on the part of the abusive or even adulterous. You will notice in Matthew 19, Jesus spoke about Moses issuing a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. I always used to think that he was talking about the hardness of the one who had been offended. I don't want to forgive That's not what he's talking about. In the primary sense, he's talking about the hardness of the one who was offended. Their hardness of heart toward God and their lack of compassion and commitment towards their spouse. Now, that doesn't mean that someone who's been offended can't have a hard heart and be unforgiving. But they've been offended. They've been violated. Their vows have been broken by their partner They are the victim in the situation. In that scenario, where reconciliation, repentance and rectification is unable to be established, there is biblical grounds for divorce as a last resort. Now, For homework and for preparation of community group, I'm going to encourage you to do something. I'm going to encourage you to look at Malachi 
chapter 2, verse 16. That's going to be your homework. And I'll pick up from there next week. Because in the main, some of you will be thinking about this, vo- this verse and saying to yourself, but how can you even advocate divorce under any circumstances? Because God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16. I want you to look at that verse in at least four different translations. One of them ought to be the ESV. And one of them ought to be the New King James. At least four different translations. You can go on the internet, um, biblegateway.com. You can go to that verse, click show in all English translations, and it will show you all of the English translations of that verse. God hates divorce, right? Hmm. Well, let's consider that next time. Because I think you'll find that God hates illegitimate divorce. So you may be here today and you may be in a worst case scenario situation. Maybe the situation has just developed. Maybe it's something you have endured and suffered in silence for many years. I would urge you, seek counsel. Seek support from the elders. That is what we're here for. That is why God has called us to uphold his word. And as the apostles were given the authority to bind and loose in Matthew chapter 16, not meaning binding demons and loosing God's spirit, if that's how you understand it, as I did but actually recognizing right and wrong in the context of God's people. Recognizing, actually, there are some occasions when people are in sin and that needs to be recognized and that needs to be held against them. As we see with Peter and Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. Whilst also there are those times when people have sinned and they've brought forth genuine fruit of repentance. And therefore, they're able to be endorsed and released from the shame and the stigma of that. Seek counsel. If separation is deemed most beneficial in order to help the situation, let that be the case. Don't make divorce your first intent. Because nobody wins in a divorce. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the team to come back and join me. Heavenly Father, we recognize that these are difficult matters, Lord. But these are real issues. Real issues that challenge our hearts and also challenge our minds, Lord. You've purposed in your word clearly that we as your people are to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. As we renew our minds, Lord, to the truth of your word, seeking to rightly divide your word, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us in making these life decisions that will glorify you. Especially, Lord, when under duress, Especially, Lord, when under 
trying and difficult circumstances, Lord. Especially when enduring great pain. We thank you, Lord, for marriage. Lord, we thank you that contrary to the hype and the propaganda, Christian marriages are strong. The statistics have sought to deceive us because the truth is Christian marriages last. Lord, I pray that you in your goodness and your mercy would give strength to those who are in pain, that you would bring healing to broken relationships, Lord. And that ultimately you would be glorified. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and mercy. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.